Welcome to another episode of Encounter. I'm Ed Kessler and today I'm sitting down with Daniel Zeichner, the MP for Cambridge. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning. It's great to be here. So, Daniel, you were elected uh, MP in 2015. Um, and um, I mean, what, what have been the big differences between, between now and then? It's only a few years, but the world's changed a bit. Uh, the world has changed beyond all recognition, I would say. The, the three and a half years I've been in Parliament have been the most extraordinary time in, in, in my lifetime. I guess the 2016 referendum for many of us was a, was a key moment and we're still seeing how that's playing out. And for many of us, the replacement of, um, or succession of Barack Obama by Donald Trump was another trauma for many of us who believe in a, a civilised form of politics. Many people in Cambridge really care about mm. the wider world. The people were traumatised by some of the migration issues, the refugee crises that we've seen and do go on, even though they sometimes aren't always at the front of the news. For people in Cambridge, these things really matter to us as, as individuals. And I, I'm delighted by that in a sense that engagement's what we need, but it can also traumatise people. And I think many people in Cambridge, their confidence and optimism about our place in the world and their place in society was fundamentally altered by both the referendum and by Trump. For some people, of course, in a very real way, because their status in terms of whether they live here or not is affected, because we have many thousands of non-UK EU nationals in and around Cambridge. I think people are more anxious, more worried. I had to say I felt a chill descending upon Cambridge his research sector a few weeks ago as people began to talk realistically about us crashing out the European Union with no deal. So these are political things, but they're also personal, and how people um, use their belief systems to help them through that. And I think that is important. But I've seen people coming into my surgery straight after the referendum. We obviously saw a rise, sadly, in racist hate crime incidents. It's not been the best of time. So let's just tease out some of the concerns of this pod, uh, which is about the relationship between religion and society. And when you encounter those faith communities and the local faith communities, what, what sort of encounters are you having? What are the specific concerns they have? The kind of concerns people raise with me are generally the altruistic ones. I mean, a lot of people are very, very unhappy, understandably, about the refugee crisis. And they partly turn to um, their faith leaders, but they also look to the political leaders too. And I think that's a very important role. It, it's, a, it's a strange thing being a member of parliament because, um, and other countries don't always understand that. They think members of parliament this country have power. Well, we actually don't, unless you're in government. But you do have soft influence, I'd call it. Sometimes we are almost asked to come in to provide that reassurance that in uncertain times there are people who can provide, hopefully, some guidance. In, in an earlier episode, we explored Islamophobia, and we had a representative from the Muslim Council of Britain uh, who was responsible for local communities, and it's, it's an area of concern nationally. Yeah. Um, now, how's Cambridge doing in terms of anti-Muslim hate crime and um, the, the, the challenges the Muslim community has here? I think compared to other communities, we're doing okay. It would be foolish to pretend that doesn't happen in Cambridge. It clearly does. We've had some high-profile incidents as well. Um, the danger is that as they get publicity, it gets ramped up. And, we've, of course, we've had some pretty horrible marches by the EDL and people like that over, over the years but it's a constant process of trying to challenge people's misunderstandings and this very morning I've been at Arbury Primary School 
part of show races and the red card. And when you're in a playground full of people from all cultures, different parts of the world, and hearing people celebrating the diversity, it's much easier to do that. If you go to places outside the city, which are much more monocultural, which is interesting, I think there it is much more unpleasant in the sense that just I think it is a genuine lack of understanding. I think when people are closer together and can share and, and benefit from the diversity, there's a much more of a celebration. As well as Islamophobia, another area, of course, of concern is anti-Semitism. Yeah, um, and this is both true in the local community, small Jewish community here, but nevertheless has had its um, challenges with um, uh, anti-Semitic incidents and, of course, the big controversy in the Labour yeah. Party. What's your sense of the Jewish community here and the fallout from that controversy on the local level? Interesting question. I don't get reports back much of incidents and problems but that's not to say that it's not going on. I mean, my sense is that I'm afraid anti-Semitism is fairly deeply rooted within this society and, and many societies, and it needs to be challenged whenever it arises. In terms of the impact of the, the wider issues this summer and within the Labour Party in Cambridge, we have had, unfortunately, some incidents on social media. Why does the Labour Party seem to have such a problem over this issue of the definition and understanding and dealing with anti-Semitism? It's a very good question, Ed, which I think many of us um, could not understand what was going on, particularly over the summer, um, when this was very much in the forefront of the news. I think for most, most people who don't follow these things perhaps quite as closely, we could not see why it would, could not be signed up to. And I think that's what most of us would have done and would have wanted to do. Now, there are some people who believe that um, applied in a very dogmatic, rigid way, some of the examples, that it would prevent criticism of the Israeli government. Uh, frankly, um, I've never found it difficult to, to criticise governments right across the world. I will be the first to criticise Trump and the next to defend the United States of America. The two things are separate. There are things that the Israeli government, the current government, has done in the last few months which are absolutely worthy of criticism and have been criticised and I see nothing in this definition which prevents us from doing that. So I was very sorry that the Labour Party wasn't able to sort this out much more speedily and I understand why many people have felt very, very, very profoundly um, unhappy about it. Many Labour members and supporters. So it, it has certainly done the Labour Party harm. Because one of the challenges is how to talk about the difficult issues. Mm. And for so many years, we've avoided speaking about them. And I think that's, that's almost bit us now. You know, yeah. we haven't really wanted to talk about immigration because it's been, you know, politically sensitive. We haven't wanted to talk about various forms that might be or, or topics that might be uh, too sensitive. So we avoided them. And I think I, I think that was a mistake. So how do you how do we talk about these sorts of issues in a way that holds on to your own view? legitimate view to criticise, but doesn't fall into the, the sort of um, basically xenophobia or anti-Semitism or Islamophobia? Mm. That is the issue, of the, or almost the issue of, of politics, isn't it, now? It, it actually isn't that different, in my view, from, from the way it used to be when you conducted politics in a village hall or a hall in the centre of Cambridge. You treat other people with respect. Now, there may be some people whose views are so beyond the norm that you don't really want to debate with them 
But by and large, treating people with respect, trying to understand other people's point of view, to me this is actually the big, the big difficulty, um, that people just really just don't seem to understand why, other why have we got to that point that polarized position yeah, that's mm, right well. you know it, 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 you, at the beginning you mentioned trump and 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 the election you talked about brexit as as those two moments but what is it over the last however many years um that has led us to the point where we're very good at talking at each other um, but not so good at engaging with one another it's a profound question i mean i think as someone who studied history when I was at Cambridge many years ago, I guess the easy thing to fall back on is the, the economic divides, which are real, and it is a polarising world. But I think there is something different that's happening yes, no, at the moment. We're no more polarised than we were 30 years ago under Thatcher. Um, the very elite part is further away. And I think actually the sense of hopelessness for most people is greater because there were, there were organised responses through trade unions and so on in the past that I think have fallen away. So I think it is actually a very polarised time. But I think there is something else as well. And I think this is about modern communication, actually. That in the past it was mediated through journalists. Now we've got much more one-to-one immediate communication through social media. And I think we're going to have to learn how... It, I mean, I think it's a fantastic opportunity the information revolution. But a bit like with the printing press, it took quite a long time for people to sort out, you know, can you censor stuff? How you behave responsibly, and I do quite a lot of work in Parliament on this with the social media companies who have just done an inquiry through the Petitions Committee on how people with disabilities are bullied um, on social media, and and it's very similar to, to the issues around hate crime and religious intolerance. What do you do when people behave badly? I mean, it's one of the most fundamental questions that all societies struggle with. And we, d- we don't yet have the answer to that. But I think it's those mixture of things which has led to this intensity. Um, I, I mean, I sometimes despair when I see some of my colleagues tweeting in the middle of the night. I mean, we all wake up in the middle of the night. <laughs> but I just think my advice sometimes to people would be, you know, do you, you, is this really, do you really want to respond to that? Daniel, have we lost the knack of disagreement? Can we, can we be extremely critical without being offensive? We seem to have lost that. I think it's a really interesting observation. And uh, one of the criticisms of a place like Parliament is it all the language seems very arcane. And all but actually, you need structures of dialogue. And there are ways of doing that. I think it can be taught. I think it can be learned. But of course, not everyone plays by the rules. And that's what you have to have. I think in the end, you have to have rules-based systems which people sign up to, and then you can have vigorous disagreement. And disagreement can be great because it makes you rethink your own position. But sadly, social media at the moment, I don't think is providing that structure. I mean, we are kind of 10 minutes into the social media revolution or the Absolutely. web 2.0, yeah. you know. And, and of course, when the Gutenberg press mm. um, came into existence, there was a feeling that the world had gone upside down. And, yeah. um, and, and so that... There are echoes of that, but it's the speed of it, isn't it, that in the um, 16th century, um, it still took longer for Martin Luther's 95 Theses to be read in different parts of uh, the Christian world. Now something happens on the um, the streets of Karachi, and within seconds, it's transmitted to Bradford or wherever it might be. And people can cause offence and insult ever so quickly. And that is a really, really difficult thing to know how to deal with. Well, what do you do? Because, I mean, there are times where we're going to move on to Brexit in a mm. moment, but there are times whether it's about Israel and Palestine mm. or, or it's about the EU referendum and Brexit, where you find that the person you're talking to is not interested. 
in, 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 in an alternative position, not really interested in engaging with you. What do you do? Well, my experience is that the, the people you describe are a relatively small minority of people. But they're loud. They are loud, and they sometimes have undue voice and influence. And part of my whole p political life has been to actually turn to the other people, uh, the vast, I'd say the vast majority, who, who do not behave either badly or loudly in that kind of way, and are much more open to reason. Some people you are not going to be able to persuade. Now, in a free society, I would not silence their voice, but I just think the vast majority of people are not like that. And through my politics, I mean, we have this problem, I would say, in the, the debate around the Labour Party at the moment, for instance. One of my complaints about the Labour Party in the 1980s was it was very much dominated by fractious disputes. And one of the things that, that we tried to do was take it out of the polarised opposites, sit people down, talk about what we agreed on. Amazing, actually. 80, 90 percent. It's always the 80, 20 rule, isn't yeah, it? absolutely. Yeah. But all that people were concentrating on was the little bit they disagreed on. And actually, um, that process of facilitation, making sure that voices that were not heard, formed, normally heard, I remember it was a, the Labour Party I joined was incredibly male. When we came to gender balance, part of the, the role was facilitating and encouraging the people. It was transformative. And I think many of the successes of um, the Labour governments, of, of, of which I'm very proud, looking back, didn't get everything right, came from listening to that wider group. So in a way, that's what you want to see again. I mean, at the moment, you hear these different voices. Let's just focus on the Labour Party for a moment, because you get the mirror in, in yeah. the Tories, if not yeah. more so. Um, but the sense of that division, that polarisation, that reluctance to engage with one another, all these different groups splitting off. Yes, division often makes news. The people who are trying to build consensus, it's slow, it's not dramatic, it quite often means the trade-offs. And that doesn't make the front page and it doesn't make the exciting tweet. But what it makes for is a civilised, decent world where people can actually live and um, achieve the things that they want to achieve. Well, I can say amen to that. <laughs> um, but let's, let, let's explore the Brexit conundrum. Because, yeah. I mean, to be honest, unlike 65 million of my fellow citizens, I don't know the rights and wrongs of it. But I do know that we are an incredibly polarised society. And I also know that the faith communities are really quite worried about the, what, what's going to happen. What, what's your sense? Are we, are we exaggerating it too much? No, we're not, because in a way it has become a proxy for a whole range of other things. Let me put in a plug for Andrew Adonis and Will Hutton's excellent book, modestly entitled Saving Britain. The key point is it's not just about the referendum or, or the deal or whatever happens next. What was underlying, in their view and in my view too, that vote was a whole set of fractured communities. Um, there was a very good report launched this week by an excellent organisation called Hope Not Hate. Interestingly, Cambridge gets a mention because there is a kind of um, a spectrum from one end to the other. And it may come as no surprise to people in Cambridge to learn that we are absolutely at one end of this. Now, we may feel very happy about that because we are described as confident, multicultural, inclusive, etc., etc. But the downside to that is we are also seen as being part of a liberal elite that's out of touch and doesn't understand what people's lives in other places like and places like Grimsby at the other end of that but actually you don't have to go that as far as Grimsby you can go as far as Ramsey 10-15 miles from here different world entirely so we've got a very fractured country 
And the question is, how do we try and bring it back together again? I do think it requires some quite transformative economic policies to equip people who who have absolutely seen their communities not only sink post the, post the industrial period, but also change quite dramatically with migration. One of the things that people like me, who, who are very much in favour of staying in the European Union, have got to address is the quite clearly very serious issues around the movement of people around Europe. And I think unless the European Union addresses those, whether we're in or out, the European Union doesn't have much of a future. Free movement is a wonderful thing, but you've got to respect also the pace of change that that creates in some communities. Sorry, it's a very long answer, but it's a very big well, question. It's a big question, <laughs> but you haven't answered it, which is what's the what's going to be the impact here, right? Oh, Regardless here of what okay. whatever happens. Well, the impact potentially, um, if there is a, a real sense that the, the democratic system has denied the will of the people, which is the way it's presented. I absolutely understand people's fears on that. What I think is very important is, should there be another decision um, that goes to the people? It's not a replay of 2016, because the world has changed since 2016. You know, Trump has come along, the world's a much more uncertain place. If there's going to be a vote, and I shall be on the, on the march, it's not a vote on rerunning 2016, it's a vote on what the options are now. Because we decided to leave, but no one was very clear where we were going. And that's the choice now. And as far as I can see, there are probably three choices. One is the, the no deal, where we just crash out completely. One is some kind of fudge in between. And the third option is to stay where we are, but try and reform. And it doesn't seem to me illegitimate to offer that choice. And at that point, providing people have got a vote, I don't really see why that should be seen as in any way undoing the previous one. It's providing people with the opportunity to make a decision on what happens now. When I have meetings in, in Westminster, there's a genuine sense of, I don't know what's going to happen. Mm. And often I'm told I don't know when people don't want to answer a question, but this felt genuine. That's true. Um, do you have any sense of what's going to happen? the outcome of all of this? No, I don't think any... Uh, it's very interesting because um, I, I was with a very good friend of mine the other day who, who runs one of the big think tanks, and she just had lunch with a very senior person on, on the Labour side, I'm not going to name names, but who, who said that over, over the period of lunch, that person had gone from saying there was no way that there was going to be a further vote to by the end of lunchtime come to the conclusion it was the only way out. Now, when you've got very senior, experienced people who can't call it either... I think it's true to say, I think people in Parliament genuinely don't know what's going to happen. And of course that uncertainty is magnified on the local level. Absolutely. So you have whatever happens in Westminster mm. here, whether it's in Cambridge or, or in yeah. Grimsby, Grimsby. Um, and that's a worry. People are genuinely oh. worried about the impact. And I don't mean whether there's a fudge or whether we, we crash out, because nobody really knows what's going to happen then. But what... I think we can be quite confident about, unfortunately, is this is a fundamentally polarised society and local communities are worried about, particularly minority communities, particularly immigrant communities, are worried about their own security and their own concerns. What would you say to that? I'd say it's a very serious concern and I think going back to where we were much earlier in the conversation, there is going to be a responsibility for, for people in positions of authority to provide reassurance. I mean, I'm going around asking people the questions now of, of public services. You know, are you ready? Can you cater for the various circumstances? And I think that we can do. 
on the individual level, whether some people are going to feel that somehow they've been denied something that they were promised. I'm not so sure about that, actually. I, I think it can be overstated. And I do think, actually, what we need to go back to is reminding ourselves we are a democratic society with a long tradition that's got us through lots and lots of divisions over the years. And I also think there is a case to be made again for the optimism that should come through. I'm very proud of our democracy. I'm also very proud of the European Union. And I just, I just want to remind people that it's not like a TV programme, deal, no deal, then you walk away. The European Union, Union is a process of constant negotiation. Even if we leave, negotiation will continue. I mean, people think, I'm so fed up with this, I want it all to be over. I, I, I've got news for them. The European Union was doing that quietly for years and years and years, which they didn't really know too much about. Possibly they should have known more. If we're not in it, every sector will be locked into interminable negotiations. It will dominate our news and our politics for years to come. If people have had enough of it, the best thing to do is to stay in and allow the EU to do what it does best, which is do very similarly to what I was describing earlier, which is that complicated process of trade-offs between different interests, very different countries. I mean, goodness me, there's some pretty horrible countries in the European Union at the moment who I really don't like what they're doing. But do it in a way that does not ultimately come to, to fighting and to war, which is what our um, continent did consistently through the last century, and actually end up with a civilised solution. So you've, we're ending this podcast with a plea to remain, but also, I think, a sense of don't forget the, the, the optimism and the pragmatism and the substance, not just of the democracy of, of this country, but the tolerance of this country. Absolutely. And to keep that in the forefront of your mind whilst being really intensely aware of, of the uncertainty around us. Absolutely. And, and some will say, it's very easy to say, from a lovely place like Cambridge. And I understand that. And one of the things that people like me are going to have to do far more of is stepping out from this lovely city and trying to help other places who are, who are not as fortunate as we are. And that's a wider political challenge as well. But I suppose just to conclude on the, on the subject that, that's, that, that you're particularly interested in, one of the things that I've found very, very helpful and inspiring is that so many people across all faith communities, what they're trying to do is work with their community and other communities for the greater good. And that to me is something which is enormously encouraging. Human beings have got a great capacity for destruction and um, self-destruction, but we've also got this fantastic ability to create good as well, whether it's in art, culture, religion, people being together. That's what we should get back to and move on to that and then the future can be worth having and we might even manage to do it in time to save our save our planet as well. Daniel Zeichner, MP for Cambridge, my local constituency MP, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And that's the end of this episode of Encounter. Next time we'll be meeting Claudia Roden, the famous food writer, and be discussing religion and food. <laughs>